Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Hello again, everybody, and thanks for joining us today. Kim and I are here to talk all things wine with you, and the way our show works is we have articles we read all week, and then we sit down and choose the ones we think we find interesting or hope you find interesting, and we don't discuss them until we sit here today. So that is how the show is kind of set up, but first, we always like to say, what did we research or Google ourselves this week? So, Kim, what did you Google on your own this week? So I had to do some research for a wine dinner for uh, a number of really unusual, harder to get wines. Um, But one of the ones that I did was some research on the Champagne House Laurent Perrier. And I've been very interested in sort of the family histories of a lot of these Champagne Houses, because even though a lot of them are very big and well known, when you get down to them, they are family businesses. And some of them, like Veuve Clicquot, are owned by larger, big corporations, but then other ones still are not. And I thought the uh, history of Laurent Perrier was fascinating because it it had a lot of female ownership, which there are more and more women winemakers and women wine owners out there. And just even knowing that this has been a trend, especially in Champagne, as far back as the 1700s, the 1800s, there are a lot of Champagne houses that were founded by women. Um, This one in particular actually was. There was Champagne made here at this house for a while until the family that owned the house died out. There were no um, no children of the owner and the owner left the champagne house to his winemaker. And so the winemaker took over and then he died and so it went to his wife. So she renamed the winery after her, na- her family name and her husband's family name, which is why it's Laurent Perrier. And then two generations later um, was sold to another woman who it is now in, in her family and it's her, I think it's her two either granddaughters or great-granddaughters that now run the winery. So um, fascinating little bit of history there. So this might be a stupid question, but Perrier, the sparkling water, any relation to the Perrier? I don't think so. I, I think that there is a slight spelling difference there too. So it's not the same, not okay. the same family. Well, it's good to know. And what about you? What did you find interesting on the internet? I found one stat about top importers of certified organic red wine countries. You, you love the organic topic. Well, yeah, countries. So <laughs> countries. what do you think is the top country importing certified red wine organic into the importing into the country? Importing into the country in order for them to consume. Yes. Ooh, I don't know. You, I think you're going to be surprised how it was ranked. Uh, China? China. China was not even not even on, on anybody's on radar. Okay. They, Tell me. These are organic grapes. So oh, yeah, I know. Number one was Argentina. Importing organic grapes. Organic red, which kind of makes sense. A lot of Malbec, right? Number two was Chile. Now, what? are they importing into Chile or are these no, Chilean wines? 
oh, I was mistaken. Red wine, I countries it was what countries are importing into their own country no, 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 organic no, no. wine. So I, uh, I'm sorry. I, mis- I'm I mis- uh, informed you <laughs> of the stat. So Argentina, number one. Chile, number two. France, number three. Spain, number four. Mm-hmm. Italy, number five. And South Africa was number six. The South Africa one doesn't surprise me. They don't make a lot of wine that we see here in the U.S., but internationally, they make you know, they make wine that goes all over the place. And their you know their quality of wine has gone up. And and I do, I did know that they they made a fair bit of organic wine. So that's so you very knew cool. That the top big three, France, Spain, Italy, right. had to be there because they so much coming into the country. There had to be something. But South America organics. with yeah. a good showing. Yeah, Argentina, Chile, and I honestly I see a lot of those saying they're organic grapes, but this was saying certified. So I'm assuming it's certified organic by their country right. standards. Yep. Right. So interesting. Very cool. Our first article is from the San Francisco Chronicle, an article that is on a topic that we often talk about here on The Wonderful World of Wine, and that is the impact of climate change on wine and on the wine world and on styles of wine that are produced and can be produced. And this was asking the question, when will California be too hot to grow wine? And it looked at the number of days per year on average that have a temperature or a feel of temperature of over 100 100 degrees. And they were saying that by the year 2050, California will see double the number of over 100 degree days than we have now, which is quite striking. Yeah. And I I liked how I projected it out. I mean, this is something they need to do to to kind of give people time to make changes as far as maybe what they're growing or what they're producing. But Napa, it said in, in 2018, they had 15 days exceeding 100 degrees. And they average only two. And I know in the past, we covered specifically Napa issues with, with the heat. So what happens with these high temperatures, the grapes basically, basically shut down. And instead of getting a nice fresh fruit, you get more of a, a dried or a burnt fruit mm-hmm. when you're producing. So it's not good, especially when you're this highly rated region in the United States. So when it gets too hot like this, the grapes just don't ripen correctly. If it gets too hot too fast, then you might have red grapes on your vines, but they're not going to taste like really ripe, ripe, beautiful, yummy fruit. They might have sort of these off flavors. Sometimes they taste like, you know, when you cook green beans for too long and you get that cooked vegetable flavor, they, they kind of do that where it's like dried fruit and cooked fruit and then leaning towards these sort of vegetal characteristics because physiologically the grapes really aren't ripe yet, but they're, they've gotten so much heat that the color changes whereas the and the flavor sort of lags behind. One of the things I thought, Kim, that was stuck out to me in this article was that they're talking, you know, the, the good producing region, Sonoma, Napa, what's going to happen? But what about when you go inland where they're producing a lot of the bulk, a lot of the volume wine? They're going to have over 30 days at 100 degrees during the, the wine growing season. So yeah. what is this going to do for bulk wine production? It's going to be tough. Is, yeah. A lot of wine is made in this area. They're going to have some issues. And, and does that mean the inexpensive wines are, are going to be more manipulated because they have to produce? Or we'll just know? see a lot fewer bulk wines, inexpensive wines from California because there's going to be a lot less land that is frankly suitable for growing grapes. You're just not going to get decent grapes out out of them or if they do grow them like you just said are they going to be you have to change the rules change for the manipulation of what not only what you're growing but what you could put in your wine are they going to water them down are they going to add flavorings sort of those questions that need to be asked 
And this could hurt, I mean, the farmers themselves because they might have to source from other countries or mm-hmm. other states just mm-hmm. to, to get out the volume, was, which, which we see now is they, they source a lot of juice because they need to produce right. the volume. And we've been seeing, you know, that that, that does change over time. And it's like, where is the bulk wine production coming from? Where can we grow it for less expensive money? But then also, the where are the areas that are suitable for growing wine grapes? And we uh, talked also in the past a lot about this, Kim, is when someone says to us, oh, there's the climate change. Wh- what do you recommend? Wh- where do we go now? If if California is heating up, what's our next option in the United States? What, what would you recommend? New York. So That's always my answer. Go right Right to New York. I go right to New York. Wow. I mean, there are a lot of other places too. There are a lot of places on the East Coast that are showing promise. Virginia is another example. There are there are some other issues with Virginia, but then there are the northern states that traditionally have not been wine growing areas because not only do they not have long enough or warm enough summers, but because the winters are so extreme. And I think that that's the other side of the coin that we still need to pay attention to. And we can't just say, oh, well, everything's going to warm up. And so let's plant grapes in North Dakota because we're still going to have really extreme winters and those grapevines still need to survive the winter. So if you have a place that has nice warm summers now but still has super extreme winters, then that's, again, not going to be a great place to plant a vineyard. Yeah, and I think people definitely have to go north a little bit. And right now, I'm, I'm really loving Washington. Washington? I think Washington for And maybe other price. regions of Oregon will as well. Yeah, and I think their climate is... is really adapting to growing grapes so much better mm-hmm. but yeah north even north. even uh, in Canada now which... yeah there's some great vineyards in British Columbia just north of Washington State that uh, produce wines that are very similar in style to what we get out of Washington that's something I think we have to as as wine educators look at what's what's going on up there and who, who's starting to bring them in mm-hmm. and it's a region that really is producing some good stuff that we're hearing but you don't see it a lot yep what do you have for Canadian wines on your wine it's just ice wine pretty much which yep. which everyone kind of relates to and it's sad that everybody kind of relates to ice yeah. wine but i think that as if consumers keep an open mind and maybe find grape varieties that are familiar to them or flavor profiles that are familiar to them you know be open open minded to wines from other places than that you would ordinarily drink and you're right like that's where it comes down to us is making people feel comfortable with trying some of these wines from less familiar places with the understanding that yeah this is you know, changes, change happens. And so here we are with some alternatives so that we can still have still have wine, but maybe investigate some other places where it will grow a little bit better. What I'm noticing a lot too now, Kim, is people selling wine to me. And as a wine buyer, they're stressing, you know, you want to get this Napa now because the next vintage, this happened and it's going to go up this much a case. So I think that's where consumers are going to really see the impact of climate change and these warm increases in California. The the prices are going to go up a dollar, two dollars a bottle. And uh, that's the reason. And in some place like Napa, where they're are vineyards at higher elevations, you know, those places will still be there. But because some of these other low-lying areas may become unsuitable for growing grape, you're going to have a lot less land area making Napa Cabernet. So the Napa Cabernets that do still hang around, like you said, are going to be a lot more expensive.
Thank you for listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. If you'd like to get past episodes, you can find us on iTunes or SoundCloud. Next, Kim, we want to talk about an article that was in drinkstoday.com talking about replica wines which or, or copy of wines, which they were relating in this to if you were to buy a off-brand of perfume. So I was kind of relating it to that. So everybody knows there's a big brand of perfume and then someone copies it, you know, finds out what's the aromas and duplicates it, right? So now there's a company in Colorado called Replica Wines that takes that to the next level for wine. What did you think, Kim? I was so baffled by this article. Baffled that baffled that it's wrong. No, or? that why do it? What what is the not only what is the point of creating a replica wine, but I mean, is this really a thing? Is this out there? I've never seen anyone trying to sell replica yeah. wine. Yeah, well, it's on their website. So the the company has sommeliers, and I would assume chemists. They buy a name brand. I wine. would think lots of chemists. Yeah, and they <laughs> taste it and make a wine that they feel tastes just like that wine, which is, you know, someone's opinion of what they think it tastes like, correct? That's I mean, very true because you you could taste a wine and taste very different things than I get out of it. You might, your impression of the acid level might be higher or lower than mine. My idea of how tannic it is might be different from yours. So, it, I mean, there's so much subjective about wine that it, it's really hard to pin down exactly what it smells and tastes like to everybody. And then on the other side of it, you can't just go by a chemical analysis because it's so much more than just what some sort of test will tell you as far as the components of it. So when you go to their website, they'll list the wines and they, they range between 15 and $20, which is reasonable. You know, reasonable price point. And then they'll list them as North Coast Pinot Noir or Canero Chardonnay. So typically when you talk about grapes from certain regions, they have a very common profile. So they're saying they copied some famous... North Coast Pinot Noir and this is what North Coast Pinot Noir should taste like, which this is where I'm confused, Kim, because North Coast Pinot Noir tastes like North Coast Pinot Noir. So not a particular winery. Yeah. So I'm not linking it to that's this winery. It's okay. It's North Coast Pinot or it's Canero Shah. They must have something else where they say sort of under the table, hey, this is a duplicate of such and such brand yeah and, such and such and winery that's my like, question this one's you. gonna this one is is our farniente copycat or you but know this one is our opus one copycat in no, their marketing can't. but the salespeople could say something like yes. that and that's where i wanted to ask you kim going with this was what is the difference in this of what people have been doing for years like 90 plus where they would say this tastes just like the wine that was rated 90 plus oh by the way it's this winery but we can't put that on the label right they've been doing it for years cameron hughes mm-hmm. been doing that for years where he has lots of napa cab or canero shot it's the same thing and these people are trying to come up with a niche based on the perfume industry saying this is how we do it related to how so the maybe it's does just it. a, a change in marketing and how it's presented so this isn't one of those wines that is constructed out of chemical elements and doesn't actually contain grape juice this is actual wine that's it's being blended grapes yeah and that was the next thing I want to ask you, Kim. In the past, we talked about the winery that used no grapes. They did molecular technology with alcohol and replicated wines. Well, I think, do they, do, think, I think is... they do a little bit of that, too. I think that they will add flavors and add acids and add other things in order to get the flavor yeah, to profile to be so the same. So do you think replica wines is a better thing for a consumer than 
a manipulated non-grape wine? Well, we don't know that this isn't a manipulated non-grape wine. I mean, it might have a, a wine base, but it might be just as manipulated. It might have just as many things added to it to get to that flavor. So the in the past... I, don't, I guess the, I just don't get this chasing... They're not telling you... They're not going that route, though, the replica people, whereas the molecular people were saying, yeah. Right. They put it, right, they put it all out we're there. We're putting this in there, but right. we're telling you that's what's in that wine. Right. Whereas other people won't tell you what they're putting in the wine. So is that better for you to know that they're manipulating it? And I what don't know. I think I it depends know. on what the consumer, how the consumer feels about it. I mean, there's a lot of feelings from a lot of consumers that they don't want these manipulated things and they don't want chemical additives and, and things added to their wines or, or other food products. So I don't know how this would, I don't even know who this would appeal to. Yeah. That's, you know, we're both wine geeks and it had no appeal to me, whatever. No, it said, me it said this was the hottest trend in wine to replicate, which, like I said, everybody's doing this already. So I, I don't understand, unless just because of the name, Replica, it's, it, it's, it's, like, it's got like thing. a sci fi kind of a feel to it. <laughs> I, I didn't see the whole appeal to it or why a consumer would pay 15 to 20 when you're probably paying 20 for the, the actual wine. Well, I, w- I would assume that they are based these off of really high-end wines that probably start at 75 or more. But see, the thing for me is when when you're paying that money for those higher-end ones, the difference between that wine and a less expensive version of it isn't necessarily the flavor components. Because when you get above a certain price point for, let's say, Napa Cabernet, a lot of them have very similar flavors. You have oaky flavors, you've got black currant, you've got red red berry, you have a lot of the same flavor profiles, but it's more the finesse of the wine, the the length of the flavor, the deepness. I don't know if those things can be replicated, whereas it's easier to replicate the flavors. So if they're just replicating the flavor of a high-end, more expensive wine, the better thing to do is just get a less, less expensive wine from that same region that that higher-end wine with a big name has, and you'll save $100 and and you'll still get very similar flavors to that higher end one. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think it's all about the place. So to say the higher priced wines, it's probably a specific AVA or a single vineyard or one producer, right? Where if you're just saying North Coast Pinot Noir, North Coast That's is very a broad. big area. Very, very broad. Why would I? There's no, to me, there's no benefit of that because the But producer, maybe they have to put North Coast on the label. Yeah, but what the, because, the producer I mean, that they're the replicating, I'm sure, is not from the whole North no. Coast. It's either a single vineyard or a single AVA within one of those North Coast AVAs, which is huge. So I don't see that. I mean, Canero Chardonnay is different because it's a specific region or a specific AVA. Yeah, so I, I don't I don't get the replica thing. Yeah. I don't think there's I don't, a I don't demand know. for it. I, I even see the people who, these people who are sourcing like the Cameron Hughes and stuff, I don't see that as being as popular as it used to be. Mm-hmm. Do you even see Cameron Hughes no. wines around anymore? No, and the 90 plus sellers thing I think has is not as popular as, as it used to be. But I am curious if people ever see any of these replica wines. I mean, maybe they only are going to be a special order kind of thing through the company's website. But if if anyone has interest, we would love to hear your opinions. Uh, leave us a comment on our Facebook page about this topic. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine and 
past episodes on iTunes. So we found a an article that is not necessarily about wine, but it is tangential to the things that we talk about. And it's about grapes. And there was a, a really fascinating article from the LA Times talking about some of these newer eating grapes, table grapes, that have been introduced to the market in the last couple of years. Probably the most famous one that people talk about are the um, cotton candy grapes. Perhaps you've seen them in your local grocery store. And now there are more and more of these more specialty, but they're very full of flavor grapes that we're starting to see in the grocery store. And it, it really gave a lot of good information about how grapes are grown and how new grape varieties are created. And we see this in the wine world all the time. I, You know, I'm one of these people that I like eating fruit and I've never really sit down and eat grapes. Yeah. But I remember maybe a year ago, I saw this thing about the cotton candy flavor and I had to, had to try. Have you tried it? Yeah, I, I, we tried them for the Was first the time this, this past year. Yes. So the table grapes and there's actually a website called Grapery. Is that what the name I of it so. was? Grapery. Mm-hmm. And they sell uh, cotton candy, gumdrop flavored. I uh, How is this flavor getting into the... Is it just genetically So they're not... Yeah. So it, made, it right? is a little bit fusing because they are called flavored, quote unquote, grapes, but there aren't flavorings added to it. It's not like there are... The, the grapes are having, you know, some sort of solution injected into them with a flavoring compound. These grapes have been developed and they have been bred by crossing a whole bunch of other different varieties of grapes in order to produce these uh, new varieties of grapes that now have these these fuller flavors. So their genetics have been um, chosen because these are the grapes that have the most appealing flavors. So this is very, very common way of creating new types of grapes. So it's not done in a lab. It's literally still done in greenhouses where, you know, you pollinate from one plant and another plant and you see what develops and then you choose your next generation of seeds based on what the characteristics of the parent plant had. And they were saying, Kim, that the flavored grapes date back till 1964. Yeah, so relatively, you long know, a relatively time. long time ago. Most of what we have in the produce section for table grapes are fairly bland in flavor. You know, they're they're neutral, but like so many other other things, you know, they they pack well, they ship well, they don't tend to get damaged as they're crossing the country. So sometimes flavor uh, is the thing that gets sacrificed as you're breeding for a fruit that will withstand, you know, a 3,000 mile trip from California to New England. But now these producers are saying, well, well we, we want flavor back. So that's why a lot of these new varieties are starting to come on the market. And I was thinking... As a kid, I've I've never even heard of these until years ago, and they've been out for so long. Yeah. So I don't know if it's just a but new maybe trend they in the maybe they never made it over here. Maybe because they don't ship well, they were only available in their own local markets. So that that could be because I mean I, I've never seen any of these either. Well, they did say less than. I think 1% of all the table yeah, grapes so it's are, tiny. Are, are these flavored grapes. It's tiny. And California makes 99% of the table, <laughs> table of grapes. they do. And only 1% of these. Yeah, but I think it's great that the, you know, this isn't artificially flavored. And for people who are worried about GMOs, um, it's not created in a lab. This is just agricultural science. And it's the way that farmers have been creating uh, new new fruits and vegetables for hundreds, if not thousands, thousands of years. So uh, a lot of research research and a lot of experimentation goes into creating these crossings, but the descriptions of what they taste like were really fascinating and they sound very appealing. All right, so let's talk some 
shock tank <laughs> ideas now, Kim. First off, these are Concord grapes, correct? Which are um, not, but not the traditional some. I think some have grapes. some Concord in them, but a lot of them seem to be um, more like Muscat grapes. So I think there are some uh, Muscat genomes in there. So it's a wine show. <laughs> Why do you think someone hasn't said, "Hey, let's make some wine"? Let's out make of some these. wine, right? Would it taste like cotton candy? I don't know. Well, these are generally not Vitis vinifera. So, but these... you could fer- you could crush it, you could ferment it. I'm sure you could. Sugar. See, I'm wondering why no one. I, like. I can just see a whole line: cotton candy, gumdrop. You know. Well, no, nobody ferments Thompson seedless grapes into wine either. That's the thing. Why? 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 Those probably because they don't have no. a lot of flavor. What about? Okay, we can't make money on the wine. What about jelly? Mm. Cotton candy jelly. That sounds cool. right. Forget the strawberry. Forget the grape. <laughs> that would be. It would be really interesting, interesting to see how those flavors would change as they go through fermentation. Because there's not a lot of it. It's not worth it. Or I think honestly, it's because they're not bred to be wine grape. There, you know, there are different characteristics that you need for a grape that's going to be turned into wine versus a, the characteristic that you're looking for for an eating grape. So, you know, you want thinner skins, you want fewer seeds, you want a different type of pulp and juiciness if it's a grape to eat than if it's a grape that's going to be made into wine. So I'm thinking that because they just weren't breeding them for the characteristics that you want out of a good wine grape, they just weren't meant to be made into wine. They're meant to be eaten. Yeah. So there. I, I, well, <laughs> I just, I'm surprised. Maybe it's just because there isn't a lot of it, but... Um, Maybe. I Probably. think it would be an interesting thing and it opens up a whole new thing would it lead to different aromas and yeah. flavors of, of a wine? Well, especially because they were talking about these as having very muscat-like aromas. And muscat grapes make some of the most unique aromatic wines in the whole entire world. So that could make a very fascinating style of wine. Well, other than trying to make a wine, I think we should have a wine pairing with these with cotton the candy type of grapes, right? Just bite the grape and pair it with different wines. Could be a fun hmm. event. We always talk about- a lot about- of fruitiness going on there. Yeah, it'd be interesting. How would you compare your cotton candy? Instead of doing cotton candy as the food, do cotton, cotton candy, candy as grapes. the grapes. Could give us some ideas. Yeah, and it would, uh, you know, how they taste together could completely change them as well. Did you ever give these to your kids? Yes, the kids liked them. I Which, didn't really feel like they necessarily tasted like cotton candy to me. Yeah, but I agree they were with tasty. That. They didn't taste like cotton candy. Do they? Did they have a lot of seeds? Like, did no, you I think they were seedless. seedless. So they, sure I they, think they were seedless. They're making them into these weird flavors. I'm sure they're gonna make them yeah. seedless. But right? I'm, I'm, I'm interested to taste the other ones when we start seeing them on our market here. I'm sure they'll be very expensive, but uh, worth a try. Thank you for listening today to the wonderful world of wine. We've been your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lenzi. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine and past episodes can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. Cheers. Cheers.